right? And it reads, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of women, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. You may have your seat as Pastor Todd comes. and Merry Christmas. Thank you through uh, the four of you that responded. Try that again. Merry Christmas. Thank you. That, that warms my heart. More of my heart gets me ready for the pulpit. So that's why I asked you, you to talk to me so I can uh, feel warm in the heart to deliver God's message. I am grateful to be here this morning. Uh, this morning's message is in our series, The Gift uh, That Keeps On Giving. Right, So God gave us his son, and in his son, there's been gifts. Last week, we looked at a, a gift. This morning, we're going to look at the gift of adoption. If you remember last week in Titus uh, chapter 3, there's this one word, and I said I could speak a whole message on that one word, and that's what I'm going to do this morning. That one word was heirs, that when we come to know Christ, we become heirs with Jesus or co-heirs with Jesus, meaning that all that is promised to Christ in us, in our adoption by God to us, we become heirs with Christ himself. So that's where we're going to go, but this is where we're going to head. Let's, uh, you're, we're going to be turning some places in the Bible this morning that gets us ready for this. Because the true gift, the only way to become an heir or to become adopted is through the Incarnation. The incarnation, the simplest definition is this. It's God becoming human. It's the union of the divinity and humanity in one person, Jesus. So the, our, the incarnation is the gift that allows us even to have our adoption, to have our redemption, to, to have what we'll talk even next week about our righteousness. That all had to come about because of the divinity of God smashing into and holding hands with the humanity of God. That's the incarnation. That's what I want to look, about, look at this morning. But how did that happen? You turn to Malachi chapter 4. I'll get there, but I'm going to, go, I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to walk our way through the Bible to Malachi chapter 4 to get us to... Where we'll be this morning, Galatians, this morning. So I know I don't have much time. I got a lot to cover. So I'm going to hit uh, times two on the speed to get us there. But here's what happens in Genesis chapter three, because this sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. 
This is even the reason that we need adoption. If you know Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God had been creating all these things for the culmination of the creation to house his ultimate creation, and that is us, humanity. So those first few days is all about God getting ready, the cosmos, for humanity to come and dwell in the cosmos. And then there's that moment where the serpent shows up in the world, tempts Adam and Eve to become like the Creator so that they can receive all the worship that is meant for the Creator. That's, that's in essence what happens in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall. So God comes down and speaks to His greatest creation, mankind, and says to them, hey, this is what's going to have to happen to you because you are sinned against me. There's separation now. You, you are no longer heirs of what you were meant to have because of your sin. And that sin that happened in Genesis 3 is true about every human that's ever walked the planet since then. There's been this massive divide between us and God that we cannot achieve on our own. We cannot get back to God on our own. This is what God says to the humans at the separation between God and man. He says this in Genesis chapter 3, 14. But the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. The dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he makes this promise. This is the promise of Christmas. The promise of Christmas happens in chapter 3 of Genesis. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. There will always be separation. But then he makes the promise of Christmas. Don't miss that in this passage. This is a Christmas passage. He says, that offspring that, that the woman will bring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his foot. That is talking about Jesus. It's a Christmas passage. You can go on into Genesis and you can see the Christmas passage even in Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is the, the forerunner to Jesus. Remember the passage, it's that Abraham had to sacrifice his only son, the promised son. And yet we see God's deliverance of Abraham, and on and on we can go. Now turn to Isaiah. This is what God says to Isaiah. Chapter 6. I promise I'm going to get us to Galatians. Excuse me, chapter 7. Here's the promise that God makes to God's people about Emmanuel. God with us, the incarnation. 
He says this in chapter 14. This is the essence of the Christmas message. You've heard it a thousand times if you've been in church any length of time. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He will make that promise that he made to you in Genesis 3 fulfilled. And this is the promise that he's going to fulfill. This is how he's going to fulfill that promise. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That is a promised passage of what's to come. Flip over just one more page. Isaiah chapter 9 is a Christmas passage. You know this as well. Just a few moments later, God speaks again to the people of God through the prophet Isaiah, and he says to them in verse 6 of chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and all the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That is a Christmas passage. And on and on and on we could go. Now turn to Malachi chapter 4. This is a Christmas passage. I'll read all of chapter 4 to us this morning. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall set, a, set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branches, meaning there'll be nothing left of evildoers. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, that is Jesus, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his or its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall thread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Remember what Pastor Joshua just said. Those under the law. This is a Christmas passage. Under the law. Remember that law the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb, all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord when he comes. And he will turn the hearts of all the fathers and all their children on the hearts of the children of their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction that, that who he's sending, Elijah, really is a foreshadow of John the Baptist who says, I've come to prepare what? The way of the Lord. I'll turn back to Galatians, our main text this morning. But hold your fingers in Malachi chapter 4. Sorry. The groans of the people. It's easy for me because I know where I'm going. Y'all don't know where I'm going. See, I held my spot. 
Remember what Brother Joshua just read to us this morning in verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, when the fullness of time came, God fulfilled His promise in the incarnation. Now turn back to Malachi chapter 4. And I want you to hold the next page up so all can see it. There's that one little page. It's in my Bible. I don't know if it's in your Bible. It goes from the Old Testament. And on that one page, it says what? The New Testament. Now here's the problem with this one little page. You know what this one little page holds? 400 years of silence. Four, we go from Malachi chapter 4 to Matthew chapter 1 in one page. But think of this in a moment. The fullness of time came. The last promise that was made was God was going to send them himself to redeem people. And then you turn the page. That fulfillment, what Paul talks about in Galatians 4, the moment of that page turning was the fullness of time, but the fullness of time took 400 years. Now, I want to put that into perspective. 400 years, God was completely silent. There was no words from God. There was no prophets of God. There was no promises of God. There was no fulfillment of any of those previous passages. 400 years. Put it into perspective. You know how old America is? Just under 250 years. And think of all the things that have happened since we've become a country in 250 years. That seems like a long time ago. Basically, you double that. 400 years of complete silence. And then Paul writes, now let's go to Galatians Chapter 4, where we'll spend the entirety of our time this morning. This is the wonder of the incarnation. There's four things that we see first in the wonder of creation. The first is the wonder of the timing. I could spend all morning talking about all that God did those 400 years, to prepare simply for the timing. One of the first things that had to take place was the Roman Empire had to come into power because he promised that in the Old Testament. That's just one of the things that God was doing in the 400 years was preparing his people for his coming even through the governments. Remember what he said in the promise in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 and 9, 9, 6, the government will rest on whose shoulders? So there had to be a governmental power in place that the incarnation would then shoulder. And on and on I could go. But remember what Jesus said about himself in Mark chapter 1. He says this, this is after John the Baptist was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee 
proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God, saying what? What's the first thing that he said when he came to start his earthly ministry? The time has come or the time has arrived. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is what? At hand. The incarnation, the timing of the incarnation meant this. The kingdom of God was finally here. It had arrived to do what it always was set out to accomplish. Back in Genesis chapter 3. To redeem people. And now he says, this is what it has to happen because the kingdom of God is at hand. You must repent and believe in the good news. God's timing, first and foremost, is perfect. Now, I hate that. I wish God would do things much quicker. But can you imagine the people of God for 400 years waiting for God? I can't wait for this afternoon, much less 400 more years. At some point in the journey, wouldn't you give up? I think it's so true for us, and we got to be reminded of that this morning. The incarnation always points to God's perfect timing. That's the first thing that we see about the wonder of the incarnation. The second wonder of the incarnation, look what Paul says right after that in verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, look at these next two words, God sent. The, the incarnation, the wonder of the incarnation is this, it starts with God. It doesn't start with you. It doesn't start with me. It doesn't even start with Jesus. It starts with God. At God's perfect timing, He's going to do something. At God's perfect timing, He's going to act on your behalf. Do we believe that, though? Do we really believe? We see in this passage God's sovereignty, meaning God is control of all things. Do we believe that? God sent His Son. Here's the next thing of the wonder of the incarnation. So He says this, but in the fullness of time, God sent His only Son. And this is how He sent His only Son. Born to a what? A woman. Which means, which meant this, God could have done restoration, salvation, any way that he pleased. Like God, God could have just sent Jesus into the world as a fully human being without having to be born. Do, do we all realize that and know that? Like, like God sent angels, they weren't human, to, to be messengers of his word. But God knew because this is what he's going to show us in a moment, that God had to send a human to fulfill the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was this. If there was sin, there had to be punishment on the humans to pay the redemptive price. So God, in the fulfillment of his time, 
the fulfillment of his deity, knew he had to send Jesus through a woman so that God could be exactly what he said. I will put enmity between you and you, the offspring. It had to be a human. Jesus had to be human. He could have come any other way. But in order to fulfill a promise, he had to be human. Do we believe that? So now we see the incarnation. He was fully God. But he was fully man. He was, as all the theologians say, he was the God-man. God pulled on skin and became part of us. One day I will preach through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews says it so well. The, 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 the writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus. He had to be human so he could suffer all the ways that we suffer. Thank God we have a God that understands everything that we go through. Like all that we have been going through this year as a church, God understands it in its fullness. It's not like God is sitting on a throne in heaven like, man, I kind of know what that means. Or I wish I knew what that felt like. No, there's a God in heaven that knows. I know what it's like to feel betrayed. I know what it's like to feel hunted. I know what it's like. You fill in the blank of all that you're going through. I know what it's like to lose someone close to me. There's nothing that Jesus in his humanity doesn't understand about us. He had to be as a woman. There's a matter of fact in the wonder of the incarnation. Next is this. The wonder of in the incarnation shows us the condition that he even had to arrive in. He says this. He says he was born of, of woman. Born what? Under the law. Like Christ himself was not above the law. He had to live under the law. Which means he had to submit himself to the law. The very law that he wrote. Think about that for a moment. Like God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, when they at some point in the journey said, we're going to have to have a law. And then Jesus is like, yeah, but I'm going to have to live under that law. And God's like, yep. Sure are. So God, through Jesus, knows what it's like to live under the law. Both the, the, the submission of it and the oppression of it. But this is the reason for that. Because he had to come and abolish the law. But he had to live under it to know what he, to live under to go abolish the very thing that he set in place. And this is the reason for those things, the reason for the wonder of the incarnation, the timing, the origin, the matter, and the con condi conditions was for one reason and one reason only. This is the reason for the incarnation. Look at verse 5, verse B. The reason for the incarnation was to redeem those who were under the law. 
You know how oppressive that law was? There was not freedom in that law. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the men of that day had brought so much oppression instead of freedom from the law. You see, the Old Testament law was given to us by God for our freedom and for our good. The, the Old Testament is all about God setting these laws so that we could actually be in relationship with God. But at some part in those 400 years, it became oppression. And I wonder if it was this. This is just a wonder. I wonder if some point in that 400 years, the people of God must have been like, man, we're getting it wrong. What else can we do? You ever been there like, man, I, like something, I'm not doing something right, so I better do something else in order for this thing that God promised to come to fruition. Everyone, anyone ever done that? And so then I live under a law rather than the freedom from the law. I better pray more. I, I better read my Bible more. I better go to church more. I better do all these things more. That's oppression, not freedom. And that's, in essence, what was happening with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like, we must not be getting it right with God because God isn't showing up, so let's make sure we get it right. And God isn't about you getting it right. God isn't about your rightness and your wrongness. He's worried about your righteousness. And I'll get to that next week. Because it's not about what you do or don't do. We'll see that in the passage. We just saw that. It's not because of anything you've done that you become an heir of God. It's because of all that Christ has done for you. So he says, I've, I had to come and I had to redeem those under the law. That word means this. You see it in the passage. To redeem those under the law. That is the word redemption. The word redemption in the Greek means this. It refers to the releasing of a slave by the payment of a price. Paul talks about that over and over and over again. You see, the incarnation points to our slavery, not our freedom. Now, it leads to our freedom, but it points to our slavery. And what are we enslaved to? Sin. Our sin was established way back in Genesis 3. God in his perfect timing said so we got to do away with the old system so that he can actually be in right relationship with me and Jesus I need you to go redeem my people and pay the price to win them back to me you see the Old Testament law living under the Old Testament law there's only one requirement for ultimate rejection of God it was called death so God shows up with Jesus and says, I will pay the ultimate price to win you back. But it points back to he had to come as a human to die on a cross because there's no other means for yours and my salvation to be redeemed. Someone had to pay the ultimate price. That is the reason for the incarnation is our redemption. And thank God that this passage doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with to redeem those who are under the law, period. 
there's implications in this passage for your life and my life because of Christmas. And here's the implications. Two things. This is what the reality of the incarnation does. He says this. He could have hit period. And it would have satisfied everything. That period there, if there was a period in the text, and no verse 5, 6, and 7, we would have been all right. Because the price would have been paid. We would have died and gone to heaven as slaves. Free slaves. But the reality of the incarnation at Christmas that points to Good Friday then says this is what is now true about you. But I wonder how many of us, I said it last week, I'll say it again, still live as slaves. If you are a Christ follower this morning, you are no longer a slave. He says, this is what you are. Paul says, but it doesn't stop there. Circle in your Bibles the word so. This is the reason that he had to come and live the perfect life so that what? You might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Let me tell you what the word adoption means to get to the rest of the passage. The word adoption literally means this, a legal process that creates a parent and child's relationship between two persons that aren't blood related. So that the adopted child could now begin to be entitled of all the privileges of a natural child. Who is the natural child of God? Jesus. So he says, hey, I went a step further. You're no longer slaves, but you're my child. Because you're my child, the same entitlements that I bestowed to Christ, I now give to you. Think about that for a moment. That is what it means in Titus when we become heirs of God. The entitlement that God has that he pours out to Jesus, he now pours out to us as his sons and daughters. We are, in essence, siblings of Jesus. And the Father withholds nothing. So two things happen at our adoption. The first thing is, we have a new father and a new brother. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28. To my knowledge, this is the first time Jesus uses this word about his disciples. Up until this point, Jesus had always referred to them as people under him. And then there's this moment after, after, catch it, when it happens. It doesn't happen before his death and resurrection. It happens after his death and resurrection. And he says this. Remember, the ladies are terrified of their minds. They're running from the tomb. And he says, wait, 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 wait. Behold, Jesus met them and said to them, greetings. 
And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, but go tell my who? My siblings, my brothers. Think about that for a moment. Up until that point, he'd never referred to his disciples as his brothers. But he knew what he had accomplished on the cross and at the resurrection. He, because of the cross and resurrection, made a new family. And he says, hey, you're now my brothers. That means, remember what he said to them back in Matthew when he told them and taught them how to pray. Hey, you got a new daddy. You got a new daddy. Which is the second thing we could say that we have. We have this newfound freedom to call God, not Yahweh, but what? Abba, Daddy. I want you to think for a moment about that word. The tenderness of that word. The kindness of that word. The intimacy of that word. Daddy. Not Lord. Not Master. But Daddy. I want you to be reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 28 happens after Matthew 26, but you got to go to Matthew 26 to understand fully Matthew 28. Remember, Jesus has just done the Passover with his disciples before their brothers. He's preparing them for his departure. He says, let me show you what this is going to look like from here on out. Every time you come to this table, you're going to Break the bread, you're going to drink the wine to be reminded of who I am and what I've come to do for you. Then he tells his disciples, hey, i got to go pray because something's really bothering me. Those are my words, not his words. But, But he does say this. Jesus went with them to that place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he takes those three closest friends of his. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch over me and watch with me. And then Jesus, going a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying what? Father. That word Father is the same exact word that we see in Galatians. Think about the agony that was in Jesus when he prayed those words. Dad. There's there's one way to say dad and there's another way to say dad, you know, as a parent. Like when my kids want something, it's a different kind of dad. Like, oh man, I know, I know what you're doing. But then when there's agony, there's a different kind of dad. Like there's this intimacy, like they know 
I'm the only one that can show up and do something for him. You know that kind of dad or mom? You know, you know that? That's the language that we see in the text. And that's the language that Paul is talking about. He's saying you can come to God, the Holy of Holies, and be really intimately close to him. And you can call him daddy. And what a gift in the incarnation. The same words that Jesus uttered in Matthew chapter 26 is what Paul is pleading with us to utter to, to that God. When's the last time you came to God as a daughter or a son as if he is your daddy? Like pleading, begging, hoping, longing, like exposing all that's in here. That is the intimacy that we get to now have with God. And God will show up for us and with us in that cry. Have you experienced that level of intimacy with God? It's only possible because of Christ Jesus. The next and last thing that we see because of our adoption is this. right? He could have left us as slaves. He could have even left us as sons and daughters. But he goes one step closer to our hearts. Turn back to Galatians. I told you we'd be all over the place. He says this. That you might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has done what? Sent you his what? The Holy Spirit. Which means now, even when it feels like God is over there, the truth and the reality of the incarnation, no, God is here at all times, at every moment. Even when we don't feel his presence, his presence is with us. Think about that for a moment. Again, God could have left us as slaves. God could have just left us as sons and daughters and received all that inheritance. But there's a third promise in that, that God will what? He'll never leave us or forsake us. Even in our deepest, darkest pain. You see, the gift of adoption gives us so much more than we could ever think, imagine, and dream. We are heirs with Christ. Therefore, we have the Holy Spirit in us. So in closing this morning, I want you to think with your eyes closed. Have you truly experienced the gift of your adoption through the incarnation?